This is Everything Happens. I'm Kate Bowler. For those of you who've been with me from the beginning, you know that I've been living through my own dark time after I was diagnosed with stage four cancer. And when you have a serious illness, one thing you are definitely going to learn about is awkwardness. After I was diagnosed, people didn't know how to respond. Human beings are, by nature, ridiculous. And let's face it, nothing is more ridiculous than having to answer the question, how are you, in a casual way, after you've been diagnosed. So I thought it would be useful to talk to an expert in awkwardness. My guest today is Alexandra Petri, and she is easily the most fun person on the planet to introduce. She not only writes a hilarious and clever column for the Washington Post, but she has auditioned for America's Next Top Model and performed more than adequately in an international whistling convention. She once joined a cult, quote, to be polite. She is the author of A Field Guide to Awkward Silences and has agreed to allow me to be awkward with her today. I am so glad you're here. Thank you so much for having me. (laughs) So, Alexandra, do you mind if I uncomfortably read the opening passage of your own book to you, the author? Oh, go go for it. It'll be very awkward, but I think that's what we're going for. Thank you. (laughs) This is my favorite. I am afraid of many things. Drowning, fire, the disapproval of strangers on the internet. That I'll be hit by a bus without having had a chance to clear my browser history. You know, the usuals. One thing I'm not afraid of, looking like an idiot. Now, to me, that seems like a kind of superpower. Does it feel like that sometimes? It really does, because I think recently I've been watching Trial and Error, and there's this one character who can't feel his hand at all, and so he's able to, like, cook and put his hand on stoves and stuff, and it's like, you should feel that. Like, if your hand were in good shape, you wouldn't be, like, putting it on a stove, but he's able to do so much more with that hand (laughs) while cooking, and I feel sort of the same way. Uh, I think Ogden Nash said, how can anyone ever do anything immortal when they see they look funny doing it and have to stop to chortle? And I certainly don't notice how weird I look at any given time. Although increasingly, like as an adult, I'm like, oh, in retrospect, I see how that would have been bad. But <laughs> I, uh, I have to say my favorite example, though, from your book is uh, the time that you asked to participate in a dog show as a human. Oh, well, the previous year I'd gone to a cat show, and then I, I like thought that I was like cheering on, and that they didn't have enough spirit for the cats. There was a cat named Mojo, and I was like Mojo, Mojo, and then like they were like, "Could you please save this for after the ceremony?" And so the next year they didn't have the cat show that weekend; they had a dog show, and I'm like, "Well, I'm going to get people to go to this dog show, yeah. and we're going to have a good time." And I get there, I, I look down, and there's this beautiful dog agility course just laid out there, and begging, I'm like, begging that looks to be really taken. fun. Oh yeah. yeah. No, so I like go up to the organizer and I'm like, excuse me, I promised my dead dog Topanga that I would do something special for her at a dog show. Do you mind if I run the course in her honor? And I should mention that I like this whole time we'd been riding around on like mopeds. And so I had a helmet because I'd been riding a moped. So what this organizer saw was this strange woman in a helmet who comes up and says, excuse me, I'd like to run your course in honor of a dog named Topanga. And so I think she was like, we're just going to do whatever this person wants. So they cleared the dogs off and they let me run it. And I ran. It was really difficult to run. Honestly, the dogs are much smaller and more agile than I am. And I, I was like, Topanga, Topanga. And at the end, she goes, I hope that was therapeutic for you. So now please leave, woman in a helmet. Goodbye forever, please. <laughs> <laughs> um, when people get sick, 
they often create these bucket lists and then they want to check things off. And one of the things I really love about your approach to writing and I think life is that you kind of do that anyway. Like you're not waiting to get sick to start collecting experiences. It's like one of the first things you say in your book, which I also wrote down, we'll read back to you awkwardly now, quote, (laughs) (laughs) I collected experiences the way some people collect old coins or commemorative stamps. So what drives you to collect experiences, do you think? Part of it is I just really want to get the most out of my like time around here. And I think having more different experiences makes you a more interesting person. Because all the people I know who I think are fascinating have like gone and done the thing that scared them. And like they've, you know, traveled or they've worked in an interesting field or they've yeah. b- built a gigantic sculpture using only salt and pepper shakers. Like they've really done the thing. And uh, so I wanted to do as much of the thing as possible because I know like eventually you just get to sit in a rocking chair and just reminisce. So I would hate to have not done a bunch of stuff before that time occurs, Yeah, whenever that time is. So what are some experiences that you've been able to have because you weren't afraid? Well, I think a lot of it is I really love sort of getting to meet people in like the world where they feel like most themselves. And like one of the neat things about both journalism in general and my personal hobbies and interests is I like to go to gatherings of folk who like once a year they get to sort of become their truest self. So like they'll be like reenacting the Civil War or like reenacting the Star Wars, which I guess you you can reenact. It didn't happen, but you can reenact it. Um, And things like that and sort of like go into worlds like that. Like, I would, like, go to a Star Wars convention and just, like, wear a Jabba the Hutt suit and, like, hang out. And, like, that's the one part where you, like, you feel sexier as, like, Jabba the Hutt than you do. <laughs> like, when, when, like, you remove the costume. Yes. Like, you're yes. on a Disney ride and this guy behind me, I, t- I took off the Jabba the Hutt, like, inflatable head so that I could see. And he goes, wow, way to ruin the illusion. And I'm like, yep, I'm you, sorry. you believed In I was Jabba one. the Hutt. <laughs> <laughs> you tell this incredible story in your book of when you started this amazing experiment where you decided to teach yourself to fail in bigger and more spectacular ways. Can you tell us some of the failures that you attempted? Oh, sure. Growing up watching like America's Most Wanted A and it's got talent B and American Idol C, I quickly realized, well, I'm not going to be able to catapult myself to fame through sheer excellence. I need to figure (laughs) out something that I can do. And then I saw William Hung and I thought, oh, this man is so good at like he has this amazing, joyful presence. And now for those who don't remember William Hung, please, please just allow everyone to revisit for a moment. He was one of those, like, everyone watched the first few weeks of auditions just to see how bad people could be. And he was, like, joyously and transcendently bad. And I thought, oh, that's my in. I can be really bad at stuff. So I went, like, I tried to audition for various things. Like, Halloween backup dancers, I tried to audition for that. They said I had good enthusiasm because I had not budgeted enough dance per minute. So I had a song that went on for like four minutes and I had a dance that turned out only to go for approximately 30 seconds and it was not ideal. Um, subsequently, I like went to a beauty pageant to like test this theory out further. And the funny thing about beauty pageants is I really should have gotten on this bus earlier because once you're over 
like 25 you're in a category that goes from like 25 to deceased and it's like called crones and it's just you and like there's four people um but then yeah i also auditioned for america's got talent and i tried to combine a bunch of different non-talents together like try to speak in tongues and like twirl around and and, and do, do a whole bunch of stuff <laughs> you describe this moment where you're what i imagine is sort of deep in the throes of auditioning slash trying slash not trying. And you look over at one of the judges and you felt like she knew? She knows. Yeah. No. And that made you feel kind of terrible, which I think... So what was it about that moment that made you think like, oh, I didn't get out of this what I thought I would? Yeah, no, because I was sort of thinking, oh, it'll be easy. Like, I won't ever have to, like, really fail. What I'll get to do is, like, work really hard and, like, fake fail instead of just, like, genuinely trying and being told that I'm not good enough. And instead it was like, oh, maybe I should have tried. Maybe I should have, like, found, like, what's something that I'm, like, really going to be passionate about and, like, get in there and, and do it and see how it goes instead of trying, like, to look so bad on purpose that I could never see, like, if I actually would look bad yeah. uh, in reality. I just thought it was such a great, I mean, that to me was one of the best realizations I've read in a long time, is you tried really hard to fail because it would be truly hilarious and wonderful. And it sounds like you're so open to experience that you're like, you're in. But then there was something about failing in that way that just didn't feel authentic to you. No, exactly. It wasn't real failure. Because you weren't really trying. It wasn't me like... It, I was, like, trying to fail, and I failed at failing, <laughs> which was, like, meta, whoa. But it was also, like, like real failures when you really put yourself out there and you're, and you're like, earnest, and then you flop. Yeah, I, I really do think it's something that is so close to bravery and is so close to authenticity and is, like, a real, if done right, it's not a facsimile of vulnerability. Yeah. I think that people need to begin by accepting that the preconditions of life are that you will truly be made a fool of and that most of the fun things are ridiculous anyway. Yes, yeah. Yeah, I think that too was like part of the key of just learning to be sick in the world is like there were times when I had to wear my um, like chemotherapy fluids in a bag around my waist and then I would have to carry more bags to hold the stuff that didn't fit on the other bags and then it was just bags <laughs> on bags on bags and then it would go into a big sort of horse needle in my chest and then, um, and then I just walked around like a giant, horrible cancer conversation piece. And if I didn't just allow the absurdity of the situation, like, yes, I bedazzled it myself. Yes, I nicknamed my bag <laughs> Jimmy Carter because I saw Jimmy Carter twice while getting <laughs> chemotherapy. I think if I didn't have that, it would be a That's lot. That's a sign. Yeah. <laughs> it felt like it'd just get harder and harder to be human anymore. Yeah, because if you're not talking about the elephant in the room, I, I feel like people will, will really go out of their way to avoid talking about Yes. So many things. That it, it can be very funny. Exactly. Well, I mean, that, I think, was one of the weirder revelations about my uh, cancer diagnosis is, on one hand, it made everyone incredibly horribly awkward. Like, every conversation uh, always began with, like, will my aunt or every uncle whose prostate really needs to be described to me right now, wherever I am. Uh, so when I read your book, I thought, yes, like this is someone who accepts people as they really are. So I, I was wondering, do you think it makes you a better friend because you simply accept the weird? 
I hope so. I think it makes my friends better friends because they're willing to have me around uh, too. <laughs> I, th- I think it, it cuts both ways because I don't know. My friends are always like my fiance and I. They're always like you two like are friends with some people that we would never be friends with. And I'm like, no, but they're great. Yeah. Once you really get to know Name Redacted, he's a terrific <laughs> human being. It's just like it takes you a little while. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I was like reading the back section of your book where you have like things never to say to uh, anyone experiencing terrible times, which was super useful because I feel like everyone's impulse is always to go and be like, oh, this similar thing happened to me. Me too. That'll that'll bond us together. (laughs) My aunt's prostate. I think that's exactly right. I'm always caught in people's aunt's prostate situation. And I'm just trying (laughs) to live and have a variety of experiences. And people continue to force me to have the same experience with them over and over again. I think it's just free association. Hey, you remind me of cancer. Speaking of cancer, yeah. this horrible thing happened to me. I guess the other thing I wondered when I read your book is that you seem to have this incredible way of being funny and allowing that to help you grapple with something important. I wondered if there was ever a moment where being funny really helped you deal with something painful. I think those are the, like painful times are the times when people most turn to jokes. Because I feel like in movies and things, you see people like they're like gathering around like a sick bed and they're all like, oh, like, let me tell you like my regrets. <laughs> and like, that's the last thing that's ever happened in my life in situations like that. Everyone's like joking and trying to like sort of cheer one another up. Like some of the dark humor, uh, <laughs> I, I feel like it's like a reminder that you're like still yeah. around. Yeah. Do you think there was um, ever a moment when being funny wasn't enough? when humor really lets you down. I think there's some things where like you can like sort of try to make jokes about it but like there's an inherent seriousness to the thing. I don't know. I guess like sometimes if you're using it to like try to insulate yourself from what's happening it really doesn't work. I kind of wondered though. I don't know. Sickness is just part of the human experience and I just wondered like why do you think we as people are so awkward about sick people in general? You'd think that people would have the sense that they are slowly climbing toward death. You know, I mean, unless anyone has figured yeah, out the an time. exception other than Walt Disney. But, I mean, you'd think that people would get that we're all going to die. And yet people seem very surprised and weird about it. Yeah, everyone's like, no, but like probably I won't. Everyone else will. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe, like, in my case, something different will occur. Um, I don't know. I think... If you look at all these pictures from, like, the 19th century and stuff, people, like, in their homes, you know, grandma is sitting there, like, in her bed, and, like, you have to sit there with that. And you're walking around the house, and you're, like, holding a baby in your arm, and there's old grandpa coughing his cough. <laughs> I, I'm not sure this is, like, a, old a renaissance cough. painting at this point. Yes. It's, it's old-timey grandpa cough. But, like, all of these things were, like, much more present, and you had to live around them and be with them. And now there's these, like, very sterile facilities where you go and you do the thing, and then you come out and everyone's like, oh, good, it's over, and we don't have to discuss it because here you are, so it must have been fine. It's sort of compartmentalized in a way that I think is, I guess, sanitary, but maybe not healthy. Yeah, that sounds right to me. I mean, it's just a little awkward for me because I have the hospital like physically attached to the same place where I work. And so I have to like leave the shiny world, like put aside my velvet smoking jacket and then <laughs> and then like walk down the steps and then like walk over and then walk into another building. And then all of a sudden everyone's wearing face masks. And I'm like, oh, we're doing something yeah. different here. <laughs> yeah, this is not the same. <laughs> There's no wine available here next to the liver yeah, section. Why isn't there wine? <laughs> You have this hilarious essay where you help people talk to different age groups, like babies and young people and middle-aged people. And, like, 
you suggest that maybe people approach four-year-olds with caution because they can actually remember things or like <laughs> you have a list of helpful questions for 17-year-olds like uh do you still respect your parents which I thought was really handy um I I have a few suggestions of how people can talk to sick people but um I wondered if we could just add a section uh to that essay about how to talk to people who are sick. I, I had a couple ideas for you uh, first. I oh, shoot. That. Well, okay, number one is um, tell them that everything happens for a reason and then immediately supply that reason because they will want to know the reason. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what is the reason? <laughs> I think people are waiting and I have, I have some reasons. Um, and then second, um, then to just cut out health tips from Prevention Magazine for them. Even though, like, by definition, they are already sick, so prevention is, like, no longer an option. I mean, it's like nine-tenths of cure, though, right? Isn't it? That's right. That's right. And so the rest of us are stuck with that one-tenth of a percent. Yeah, that's right. In the end. I wonder if you had any other ideas for how to talk to sick people. Loud voices, probably, even though not many people are hard of hearing. Loud and slow. (laughs) I do find that... um, I've turned more and more to comedy as a way of trying to like bump people out of that script where they're, I can see that they're looking at me. They can tell that I'm sick and then I'm just about to try to preempt it. Like if you say the thing, then they won't have the chance to say whatever bad idea thing they were going to say. So at least you will have a different conversation. (laughs) Yes. Anyone, I can guarantee you that anyone who talks to me will have a different conversation. (laughs) Well, it was such a pleasure talking with you. Thanks so much for Likewise, with man. Me. This was the best. <laughs> this was really fun. Okay. I was having so much fun talking with Alexandra that I awkwardly completely forgot to ask her some of the things I wanted to know. Gosh, I know. But then again, today is all about awkwardness. So I'm going to take this opportunity to, that's right, uncomfortably, awkwardly, call her back. Hello. Hey, Alexandra. I am so sorry to call you back like this, but I just had a couple more questions. All right. (laughs) So based on your age group, like, what do you think are the most common, like, life script tragedies? First, like everyone's sort of the grandparent loss, which is like you have the Facebook post and then you have the people writing in and like it's sort of both sad, but also something that you have had reason to anticipate over a period of time. And so everyone's like very weird about it. They're like, how old were they? And then you're like, oh, 86. And like, oh, that's good. I mean, not good, but like, it's fine. Exactly (laughs) right. Everyone acts like it's like, well, they'll they'll give you like a a measure of sadness based on how old they are. Absolutely. It's like calibrated. It's weird. Like you're like, oh, 70. They're like, oh. And you're like 90. They're like, well. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Grandparent loss, you're totally right. Yeah. And then there's like also sort of like the one peer loss. Yeah. Or like the like unexpected parent loss, I would say. Those are the two. Yeah. Other ones. Yeah. And then just the universalizing horror of um, failed relationships. Yes. <laughs> yes. Well, I do have a sort of ongoing theory that anyone who hasn't been dumped like a few too many times, like probably isn't a good person. Like, because how can they build character? Yeah. No, how do you build character and also, like, how do you know that you still like yourself even when 
X person doesn't like you. Yeah. You have to decide in the face of overwhelming evidence yeah. that you're actually still okay. Exactly. It builds gumption. <laughs> yeah. Or a sense of delusional grandeur. But either <laughs> yeah. way, like it's going to work. Yeah. But both are necessary at some <laughs> point in life. I think you're totally right. I did wonder, given your expertise in awkwardness, if you have any tips on how to get over awkwardness when you're with people who are actually going through awful times. With the caveat that I'm super bad at this myself and no expert at all, <laughs> I feel like all of the times when I've been like most terrified of like, what am I going to possibly say when I get into this room? Like, once you get into the room, it's much easier. Like, just go and do yes. and like be there. And yes. like, once you're there, it makes so much more sense than when you're like, oh my God, should I go? I won't even know what to say. I won't know what to do. Will, will we just sit around the whole time? And like, sometimes you will just sit around the whole time and just watch Hallmark movies, like the same <laughs> one three times in a row. And that's fine. Like, I, I guess just getting in the door in the first place and being there, I feel like is the hardest part. Yeah. Yeah. You're totally right. Have you ever been in a situation where you feel like you failed a friend who's hurting and maybe you'd wish you'd done better? Yes. I mean, countless times. Uh, I think <laughs> my nightmare is always that I will text somebody to like invite them to something with like their spouse and they will have like already broken up and like have been divorced for like three <laughs> Two months years. and not have told me. So I'm always like terrified. I'm like bad at initiating. And I think my regret <laughs> is that I haven't like stepped up more and yeah. done the thing. Yeah. Well, it's hard, especially when like you're not even sure the thing has happened. Yeah, I'm never sure what I'm supposed to say. Like after a breakup, I can be like, "You are great. You are golden. Like nothing. Like you deserve like the world, et cetera, et cetera." Yes. Like I, that, I, I feel like I understand conceptually what people want to hear because that's what I wanted to hear myself, at least, and I can extrapolate from that. But in other situations, I'm like, I, I don't know what to be like. Do people want like me to give my thoughts on the subject? Do they just yes. want me to sit here? Like, yeah. do we want to try to do an activity? And yeah. everyone always says like, "Don't say." Let me be there for you. I'm ha happy to help in any way. And like, then you force the other person to suggest something. But then I'm always worried that like, oh, no one will want like my casserole. Although one time a friend was going through like a grief period and I'm like, I can bring you a casserole. And she's like, have you ever cooked anything resembling a casserole? And I'm like, no. And she's like, thank you. I needed that laugh. So inadvertently, I had provided something. Well, thank you so much for doing this. I appreciate you popping back into my life. Oh, I appreciate you. Thank you for popping back in. And sorry that I did not touch on the narrative and therefore required a separate additional call. It was all a ruse, I swear. I mostly just, I mostly just wanted to hear more about your problems. Thanks. So here they are. <laughs> That's awesome. So I think I might just call Alexandra back every day from now on because, holy crap, that was hilarious. When something really terrible happens, it is so weird because it hits you at almost the same place as something that is really funny. It's just absurd. It's like completely surreal. So I'm a normal person who suddenly got stage four cancer. And honestly, it made me hilariously accepting of reality that maybe shouldn't be reality. Like the other day, a police officer came to my house and accused me of murder. Okay, this is what happened. A police car pulls up to my house, waits. A second police car comes. Officers get out and chat for a minute before approaching our door, warily. Tobin opens the door and I hear muffled voices and then my name. I'm Kate Bowler, I announce loudly, stepping out onto the porch. 
Well, says police officer on the right, I'm sorry to have to tell you this, but you have been accused of murder. And I could feel my brain freeze and then stop. Well, my body gets that loose feeling I remember from the time I once fainted after working out to Richard Simmons sweating to the oldies. Just kidding, he says. I think we have the wrong address, said the other. And I could barely hear them because I was already imagining my life behind bars. But you know what I said? I said, I sometimes have murderous thoughts. And then Tobin elbowed me so hard because sometimes being accepting is not the best thing in the world. Next time, I'm going to talk to someone I think of as a human tigger. Her name is Margaret Feinberg, and she is not just a really popular speaker and author, but she is the person I called when I got sick because she knows exactly what to say to make everything less terrible. You're going to love her. Everything Happens is produced by Duke University in association with North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC. Support comes from Faith and Leadership, an online learning resource. This podcast is produced by Beverly Abel and Allison Jones. Sound engineering is by Dennis Foley with assistance from Ivan Panaruski. Special thanks to Amanda Height and the Be the Change Revolution team and Random House. And we'd love to hear from you. If you like what you're hearing, please post a review on iTunes. And while you're there, be sure to hit that subscribe button. You can find me on Facebook, always, Instagram, often, and Twitter, every day, at Katesy Bowler. Let's chat. Until next time, this is Everything Happens with me, Kate Bowler. <laughs>